to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews, and many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. Hey, Humor, this is Jeffrey Jamala Simran from Jindu Desert Band. We love community radio, 3CR. Support independent music and views on air called 94198377 to subscribe or online at 3cr.org.au. You are Palya. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday, the 27th of July, and it is 7am. You're here with me, Fung, and in the studio today, we've also got Genevieve and Carnegie. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. How are we all going um, in lockdown? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I was saying to you just before, Genevieve, I've been trying really hard to read like anything, a mm. book, anything, but I just have no <laughs> energy yeah. or motivation. So I've been watching a lot of TV. Have you guys seen the show Taskmaster? No. <laughs> okay. It sounds very exciting. <laughs> it's If you like British humour, mm-hmm. it's very British. Um, basically, it's like a game show type thing where these comedians have to um, compete um, and complete these like ridiculous tasks, like um, trying to like they have to like hide themselves in a telephone booth, and um, <laughs> they can't be seen from the outside. And the person that best does that wins. Like it's all ridiculous. But I am <laughs> obsessed. So, just like I mean, one of the other most popular British reality TV shows is like The Great Bake Off or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, British yeah. reality shows are so. Like, oh, they're so good. They're so yeah. Good. But now I'm like, oh, I really want to do a 3CR Tuesday breakfast Taskmaster edition. Mm. <laughs> Just rope you all into doing really silly tasks. Yeah. But that's been my week. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. I, I've, uh, I've been doing the, uh, I think, quite a typical lockdown thing of watching all of the Harry Potters with my housemates, um, which has actually been really entertaining mm. and um it's really good to re-watch them as an adult <laughs> just because I mean like the character the characters are so interesting but also the acting is terrible but the storyline is great and so it's just so much to talk about there's a lot going on there there's a yeah. lot controversially I really dislike those movies <laughs> Say more, no, can you say more? I don't know if I should say it on air. I feel like that's <laughs> No, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's fine to not like Harry Potter. I'm not yeah. a diehard fan. 
the movies are just they just don't do the books any justice yeah and so i've always been like i can't and i just find it weird i found the casting like so wrong ever mm. since i was like a small child i'm like mm. that's not snape get that man away <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah, terrible acting daniel radcliffe <laughs> oh my god oh yeah i no. just like emma watson's eyebrows like i just <laughs> it's all in the eyebrows yes and the um the patil twins outfits mm. all of india was really up and oh really yeah it doesn't that's justice for the patil twins they should have gotten much better outfits what what do you more. mean were they like just you know they're just too basic or way too basic oh yeah 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 mm. yep. mm. <laughs> oh now i want to rewatch that particular scene not that i mean yeah I wouldn't no, I really know, it. but I feel like... Just to feel like... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that you've talked about it, I'm like, yeah, yeah I want to get angry now. Um, well, should we talk about what's coming up on today's show? Um, we've got uh, a bit of a focus um, for this morning's show. Um, we're looking at Cuba. Um, mm. And we're really excited um, to to listen to your interview Genevieve do you want to say yeah I'm more about that I'm really excited about this one I have been particularly disappointed with the media um coverage of um I guess the protests in Cuba um and I had the pleasure of talking to Dr Sujatha Fernandez uh, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney um and has written uh several books and articles about Cuba um, and she kind of explains exactly what's happening in Cuba. She has friends in Cuba. Um, she also speaks Spanish, so she can read a lot of the Cuban articles and um, Cuban journalists. So mm. I think she does an incredible job of kind of explaining exactly what's happening and kind of dispelling some of the, I guess, misinformation and exaggerated information that is kind of circulate, circulate, <laughs> circulating around Western media. So, mm. Yeah. Um, and, and then just before that, I, I thought it could be interesting to play um, a segment from uh, one of uh, an old episode of Accent of Women, actually from um, 2015, um, where we hear from um, Kenya Serrano Puig, who um, at the time the president of Cuban Institute for Friendship with the Peoples, and um, talks about, I guess, the um, what it means um, for uh, diplomatic relationships to be uh, re-established between the US and Cuba, because that's when that happened in 2015, and what impact that would have on on Cuba. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see what the sentiment was then mm. in 2015 and, and maybe how things have changed or, or not. Definitely, yeah. Um, I think because it, it was such a pivotal year for Cuba and the US relations with Obama and then, you know, Trump getting into power, but um, <laughs> kind of messed all that up. Um, but also I think uh, worth mentioning was yesterday on the 26th of July was the um, day of uh, Cuba celebrates the day of revolution, um, which is the 26th of July, um, originated from the failed attack on the Moncada barracks on army facility in the city of Santiago de Cuba. Um, and the attack was led by a young Fidel Castro, who was a legislative candidate in a free election that had been cancelled by Batista, which was the president before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So even though it was a failed 
attempt, um, I guess it does mark the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. Mm, um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess it's um, really relevant that we speak about this and we hear from um, uh, Dr. Um, Sujatha Fernandez today, mm. um, given that the anniversary was yesterday. So, yeah. Um, okay, well, we'll be right back after this. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff. And book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. Um, Welcome back. Uh, Let's look at the news headlines for today. Um, Yesterday, uh, Jacob Jacob and I um, talked about uh, the a lockdown here in Nam and um, the potential for things to uh, open up again mm. later this week. Um, and so just looking at um, an ABC article that was updated um, just half an hour ago, um, says that schools are set to reopen from Wednesday. Hospitality businesses will be allowed to reopen with density restrictions. Um, so I guess we'll see um, what else uh, will happen from tomorrow yeah. it's um, looking hopeful yeah, yeah. Um, that we're going to come out of it by eleven fifty nine. um but yeah i think the consensus is that ma- masks will still be mandatory inside and outside and um there'll still be a cap on visitors yep. indoors and outdoors yeah <laughs> um yeah i guess we'll see um i mean yesterday um, you know, there were 11 cases, but they were all in isolation. Yeah. yeah. Their it's funny how a lot of people, that's kind of all they're searching for. That's what I searched for in all of the COVID articles. Yeah. I was like, mm. 11 cases, uh, all connected to existing yeah, yeah, cases. Yeah. Great. Okay. Move on. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting to think about like how, um, our perspectives and how like our attitudes towards mm. you know daily numbers and things like that have um have changed definitely for the yeah. past year yeah definitely 
Um, in other news, something that stood out to me, um, and I mean, it's, I know that the Olympics are on, but I actually don't think it happened at the Olympics. At, it was at the European handball, um, uh, European uh, volleyball, sorry, no, handball championships <laughs> match um, where the pop star Pink has offered to pay a 1,500 uh, euro fine that was handed to Norway's beach handball team after the women wore bike shorts instead yeah. of bikini bottoms. Um, so there's, I guess, a mandatory uniform uh, regulation that the women have to wear bikini bottoms, but the Norwegian team wore like shorts like mm. I guess the men's teams do, um, and they received a penalty for it, which is pretty awful. Yeah, and haven't they been campaigning for a while now mm. to have their um, uniform or changed so because they, they they've been i think they've been vocal for a while saying you know we're sick of mm. sexu- sexualization that comes with this um and then they just kind of had enough i think and we're like well yeah we're gonna wear shorts it's also just so it like puts into perspective how arbitrary it is because in other sports or other parts of the world or like you know those shorts that they wore are considered Mm. sexual mm-hmm. like other people would get in the same treatment as they would get wearing bikini bottoms yeah shorts. yeah and i just find it's like so random that's so true <laughs> like the short i mean they're shorts at the end of the day as well yeah. um and the fact that yeah it's such a momentous thing to move from bikini bottoms to shorts yeah. is like such a big deal and still get punished for it i i also saw this is this is at the olympics um, a German gymnast was the first woman to wear the full bodysuit instead of the leotard yeah. um, in an Olympic competition. And that was like a huge deal. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I mean, the uniform's gorgeous, like um, uh, like a full body kind of um, suit. But yeah, it was like made news headlines and it was like a really huge deal for the gymnastics community. Mm. Um, cause I know that in gymnastics competitions across the world, that's kind of been something that they've been trying to introduce as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, has anyone been watching any of the Olympics? I haven't. Um, I wish I had actually, there's, I was looking at the, um, young, I think she's 13, um, Japanese girl who won the skateboarding gold oh, medal. Sick. And it was yeah. like, the photos are just so incredible it's like i think it was three young girls who won gold silver bronze from three different countries and like the kind of energy in the photos Mm. is just so heartwarming Mm. and nice it's like so supportive and they so genuinely seem so happy for each other and yeah just they're all 16 and under and i just wow so i regret not watching that (laughs) yeah that's pretty sweet um yeah i i haven't either yeah (laughs) But maybe now, I mean, I feel like that has really made me want to watch something. So, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I'll just rewatch that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rewatch that particular segment. Um, okay. Well, um, we might uh, go to an announcement. We'll be back after this. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways. Retracing Melbourne's Queer Footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne 
combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to go to a track now. Um, it's by one of my favourite artists, Nairi, who um, is Papua New Guinean but um, works, um, uh, I think, mostly in Sydney or is based in Sydney. Um, and this is her song, uh, Closer. <laughs>
So that was Closer by Nairi. Uh, we'll be back right after this. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. So in 2015, um, a diplomatic relationship between Cuba and the US was re-established after, um, I guess, over 50 years um, uh, of hostility. Um, and that we had an episode of Accent of Women in 2015 um, hosted by Lourdes Garcia-Lake, who played some audio from... Kenya uh, Serrano Puig, um, who talks about the impact of um, uh, that relationship on Cuba and, uh, yeah, the obstacles that, that the country could face in the future. Um, and it opens with Lourdes giving a bit of an introduction. Today we are listening from Kenya Serrano Puig. She is the president of the Cuban Institute for Friendship with the Peoples, the ECAP, and a deputy to the Cuban National Assembly. 
Kenya visited Australia in June this year, invited by the Australian Cuban Friendship Society, and we had the opportunity to hear her reflections on these topics. We will hear to a combination of recordings from both her presentation during her visit to Melbourne and an interview conducted by British organization Rock Around the Blockade. You can find the links to that organization in our Accent of Women page. During the last few months, the governments of Raul Castro in Cuba and Barack Obama in the United States have announced the intention to normalize diplomatic relations. What are the main obstacles that this process faces and what will be the impacts in the Cuban society and in the economy? I will give my personal opinion because I'm not an expertise on those aspects. I'm an activist of international solidarity and the presence of ICAP. And I can tell you that, first of all, that is a process that we are uh, facing today as a result of our resistance, as a result of our firm position in our principles defending Cuba the Cuban Revolution, our independence, our sovereignty, and our decision to build a socialist society. So, in coherence with that, I believe that the process is going to be a long process. And when we talk about rejoining diplomatic relations, it is quite different to say that the relations will be normal. So the normalization of the Cuba-US relations is something that we will see but in, in, in a period in a in a long term period in my in my understanding because remember that ideologically speaking we are not reconcilable. So we are different. We are since not only since January the first, nineteen fifty nine, the Cuban Revolution and the Cuban nation as a project is totally a in contradiction with the ideology of the United States and the founding fathers of the U.S. system and the country of the United States. So if Cuba wants to be independent, there are going to be many threats coming from the U.S. If Cuba wants to continue being sovereignty and deciding on our internal domestic uh, decisions, it is going to be something coming from the U.S. because ideologically speaking, they are designed to be the owners of Cuba. So it is a contradiction that I don't feel that is going to be solved in a short period of time. So another aspect of your question is uh, what obstacles this process will have. I think that I already mentioned the ideological obstacles, but of course, you are interested in knowing the impact in the society, in the economy, in different terms, in time. Well, uh, in terms of our economic uh, situation, we believe that if the uh, U.S. President, uh, Barack Obama, uh, take into consideration his prerogatives, there are some levels of exchange in terms of economic exchange 
in terms of the licenses that he is already approving in order to allow U.S. citizens to come to Cuba, in order to allow some sectors of the Cuba and the, 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 the people in the U.S. To, to be in communication, that it will have a positive impact. Of course, remember that the main obstacle is the U.S. blockade against Cuba. And that blockade is approved and codified by the U.S. Congress. So Obama, he said that he's committed to engage the Congress in a serious debate about the blockade. So we hope he has success on that. Remember that another obstacle is that in a current composition of the U.S. Congress, there is the Republican Party is the majority in that uh, legislative body, and it means that Many of the Republicans are anti-Cubans. Of course, there are some B-party agreements in terms of having a tactic interest in lifting the U.S. blockade against Cuba. For instance, let us mention the case of uh, some uh, enterprises and some businessmen willing to have a coalition against the blockade because they belong to the lobby of the food industry in the United States, agricultural industry, and also people willing to sell their products in Cuba. And it is interesting that tendency, and we know why they want to leave the blockade. They want to leave the blockade because the blockade is an obstacle for their business. So they need to make profit out of the lifting of the U.S. blockade. And of course, we are expecting that to, to happen. But we are sure that another obstacle is that the U.S. is clearly saying, and the, um, Barack Obama clearly said in many moments during these days that he has been uh, doing many speeches about Cuba and the, 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 the change in his policy on Cuba, that the objectives are the same. They changed the methods because the methods were a failure, the policy was a failure, but they say they have the same objectives. Which are the same objectives? Well, to defeat the Cuban Revolution. So, it is another obstacle. The cynicism of the U.S. policy on Cuba, because they are saying, well, we understand that our policy is a disaster, is a failure, but we need to continue looking for a way to uh, achieve a regime, change, uh, regime change in Cuba. So it is absolutely unacceptable for us because it is the Cuban people, it is our parliament, it is our civil society, it is our elected officials, the ones that are empowered to decide what will happen in Cuba. It is not any foreign power who will decide the destiny and the future of the Cuban revolution. And in terms of the, the Cuban uh, society, we understand that one of the things that uh, immediately, together with the approval of the U.S. policy, the, the, the U.S. blockade policy against Cuba, together with that, they have been prohibiting the U.S. citizens to come to Cuba. And I advise you to, to wonder why. Why don't they want the U.S. citizens to come and see Cuba by themselves? So that's one of the benefits that I feel we will achieve from that. Because 
And still, today we are we are witness of that. ICAP, our institute, is receiving thousands of people coming from the U.S. And you can see that the majority of those citizens realize how many lies they have been told during their lives. They come to Cuba, they see them by themselves, they talk to the Cuban people, and of course there is not a, a consensus that they are in favor of the Cuban socialism. No, 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 it's not the situation. But they are now more able to understand what Cuba is. They are able to understand that, yes, we have a society with a lot of achievements, that in Cuba you can walk down the streets and nobody's going to kill you, nobody's going to kidnap your, your kid, or, and so on. So it is a, a process where the Cuban society is going to be benefited in front of the eyes of the U.S. public opinion. I know that a, a, a huge wall of silence continues because there are more articles in the U.S. media about Cuba, but still there are a lot of distortion. There is a lot of distortion regarding the Cuban reality, but nevertheless, it is very important to have people-to-people -people exchange. And what is happening today in these changes, we have obstacles, but remember that Obama recognized that the Cuban government is the entity with which they have to relate. They cannot relate with the civil society, what they call the independent civil society, or the private sector of Cuba, because the institution is established by the Cuban revolution in power, and they have to recognize the empowerment of the Cuban revolution and not any other alternatives or opposition that they build with mercenaries paying salaries for the people here to save why the, what the U.S. intersection is expecting them to save. So there are some obstacles, and we are not a, a policy optimistic. We expect this process to continue, and we are doing our a, a process with our principles. We are not going to do any concession in, in our principles, and I hope we will have results. And the U.S. people is in favor of that changes. The majority of the U.S. people is in favor of that. And I hope that the U.S. government, the present uh, administration and the future administrations take advantage of this moment for Cuba and also for Latin America. That was Kenya Serrano Puig on um an old episode of Accent of Women from 2015, speaking at an event in Melbourne. Um, Genevieve, mm. you wanted to talk a little bit about what's been happening yeah. in Cuba since. Just briefly, I think, um, you know, because that interview was done in 2015, that was when Obama was still, the Obama administration was um, still in power. And, you know, Obama did a lot of great things for the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. Um, but as soon as Trump got into power, there was um, really tough sanctions uh, put on Cuba, um, particularly because um, Cuba had very strong relations with Venezuela. And as I think we all know, the U.S. and Venezuela um, have some very deep diploma, diplomatic and uh, political issues and there are hard sanctions on Venezuela as well um, but pretty much put um, 
labelled it, you know, a state sponsor of terrorism, like put heaps of sanctions on them, restricted them to be able to trade and um, I guess access the global economy. And that's why when you go to Cuba, um, well, that's why they rely so much on tourism. But when you go to Cuba, you can't actually access the local currency that you have to get it exchanged into um, another currency. And that's kind of where they make a lot of their money. Um, But I also just wanted to flag in terms of, uh, I mean, right as of right now, the Biden administration um, has kind of said, you know, we're not really going to touch this. We're not going to do anything. And, you know, there's a kind of a mixture of um, people wanting Biden to do something, but in a very varying ways, like you've got the Floridian governor who is literally, you know, I mean, you've got a lot of Cuban diaspora in Florida, but is literally saying, you know, we need to go in there. We need to infiltrate the internet. We need to come in there with tanks, like really going like (laughs) gung ho. Yeah. And then there's a lot of people, you know, you need to just take the sanctions off. And there's a lot of, the U S appears to be having a huge discussion without actually kind of, uh, asking the question like, oh, what what do you think Cubans want? <laughs> yeah. Um, sounds about right. Yeah. <gasps> and I also wanted – I thought this was really interesting um, and it's actually an article that um, Sujatha uh, shared as well. Um, a lot of reports um, about the protests were saying that it was uh, supported and led by artists and musicians, um, and particularly from uh, Cuba has a very vibrant hip-hop scene. Um, and there's a particular song uh, called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so apologies in advance, Patria Yevida. Um, which has been, you know, described as, you know, it powerfully explains how young Cubans feel and, you know, it was re- released, um, it was so impactful and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people say, you know, you'll go to jail if you're caught listening to it in Cuba. Um, but I think I want to dispel some of that, um, I think, misinformation just because uh, a lot of um, the hip hop scene, this is really interesting. I found this really interesting learning about this, um, is actually, uh, recruited and especially the rapper that did that song, uh, was recruited and funded by the American government. Um, and a lot of it is speculated in order to sow discontent in the Caribbean nation. Um, so there was the latest grant publications of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is an organization established by the Reagan administration as a front group for the CIA, um, show that Washington is trying to infiltrate the Cuban art scene in order to bring about regime change. Um, this is just coming from the report. Um, uh, but yeah, I found that really interesting. (laughs) That's, it's so interesting. And it's, I mean, I... Definitely, I'd never even slightly heard of it. So, mm. neither, yeah. Um, but it'll be definitely interesting to watch this space, and I think, uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're going to listen to your interview with Sujatha very soon, um, but we thought we'd play another track um, <laughs> in honor yeah. of the news this morning. Yeah, do you wanna do you wanna say a bit more, Kanagi? <laughs> yeah, introduce sure. it for us. <laughs> um, well, so this morning we talked quickly about um, the pop star Pink, who um, is offering to pay the fine for the gymnastics team that 
decided to take a stand and not wear bikini bottoms and wear shorts instead um, and are now being fined and Pink is stepping up um, to the plate. So we thought that in, in honour of that, we'll play a song by her called... Uh, yeah, so this song's called You and Your Hand. I think it's a bit of a throwback. Um, yeah, it's absolutely a throwback. Yeah, so enjoy um, a bit of pink on your Tuesday morning. But you're going home alone, aren't you?
So that was um, Pink with the song You and Your Hand. Yeah. Um, Genevieve. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was just telling um, everyone that Pink was actually the first person I saw live. I was like maybe 10 or 11 and my dad bought me tickets on for my birthday and I went with my mum. That's <laughs> really was, sweet. Yeah, it was it was really special. <laughs> um, but yeah, I used to love her. I was like very, I was just saying I was very um, angry and like angsty child. Just pink was like very good outlet for me. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to go to my interview um sticking with the cuban theme we might actually just play a quick announcement beforehand but we'll be right back to enable change we need to show broad community support show your support for walking and cycling in the city of yarra by appearing as a champion on the streets alive website representing your local street neighborhood or school it's fast free and simple learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org a 3CR supporter. Protests it is seen in years, where thousands have taken to the streets to bring attention to the worsening shortages of food and medicine and the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The economy is on a sharp downturn and many are concerned for the future, but it is not only COVID that has impacted the country. Sanctions from the US have inhibited Cuba's ability to take part in the global economy and trade. Joining us to discuss the current climate in Cuba and to give us some context on what brought Cuba to this point is Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney, who has written numerous books and published articles on Cuba, and her research combines social theory and political economy with in-depth engaged ethnography of global social movements. Thanks so much for joining us, Sujatha. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to start off by giving a bit of context to our listeners. Uh, These protests have been labelled as a result of ongoing economic woes uh, for Cuban citizens, obviously exacerbated due to COVID, but I guess I wanted to focus prior to the pandemic. What was going on in Cuba? Um, Who is in in power and what kind of place is it to live and be a citizen in? So um, Cuba, in in Cuba today, prior to the pandemic, the leadership of the country was, uh, the country was being led by the Communist Party and Miguel Diaz-Canel, who is the leader of the Communist Party in Cuba and president of Cuba. And um, the he had taken over from Raul Castro and from the Castro brothers who ruled Cuba for a very long time since the 1959 Cuban revolution and represented to a strong extent a continuity with the policies of the Castro brothers and with the um, and that of the Cuban revolution. So um, prior to the pandemic, Cuba was undergoing a very difficult scenario um, related in part to the ways in which the sanctions, US sanctions, 
have been tightened under President Trump, the US president, former US president, who um, had restricted travel, had greatly restricted remittances um, of Cuban Americans sending money back to their families. Um, and it had just made tourism much more difficult. And tourism is a lifeline for the Cuban economy and for many Cubans. And so in general, uh, ever since Trump came into office from 2016, Cuba had been going into quite a difficult period. It had also, it's one of its close allies, Venezuela, had also been, has also been experiencing a lot of troubles, internal political conflicts and, um, and also US sanctions. And that had also really made things more difficult on the island for Cubans. So um, so prior to the pandemic already, um, Cuba was experiencing a very difficult scenario. And within this, there were um, certain voices, one of which was the San Isidro movement, who um, had become increasingly vocal. Now, it's it's hard to pass out exactly. My own research has been looking at Cuban hip hop and the arts and all the kinds of very rich activism, feminist activism, Afro-Cuban activism that has taken place for years within Cuba. Um, and it's also been... Uh, um, you know, one of the issues that has that has worried people inside Cuba has also been intervention of the U.S. And the U.S. has definitely had a hand in trying to sponsor dissidents within Cuba to turn them against the government. So, so it can be a little hard to pass out sometimes what exactly is going on when you have both genuine movements for social change happening within the country, but you also have heavy ideological um, uh, strands from outside the country, particularly, um, you know, Republicans like Marco Rubio who try to jump on the bandwagon, who, you know, call for humanitarian intervention into Cuba, who, um, you know, and the active sponsorship by groups of USAID of rappers and others within Cuba with the aim of regime change. So we can't separate out these things. They're both part and parcel of what has been happening historically and what's happening today. For sure. It sounds like definitely a blend of both uh, outside intervention and internal uh, problems politically. But uh, just focusing on, because I really want to hone in on, especially the US um, a little bit later, but with COVID, obviously COVID's kind of amplified any sort of economic problems that uh, countries uh, had prior to COVID. Exactly what has been the impact on Cuba So Cuba, I would say at the beginning, um, handled COVID quite well. They uh, kept numbers low. They restricted tourism and entry to the country. And so they had a very low number of COVID deaths. They were able to maintain food supply. And and, uh, to some degree, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, they did quite well. They also have a very strong biotech industry. And Cuba has actually developed five vaccines, which is remarkable. If you think we're here in Australia and our government hasn't even managed to develop any vaccines, let alone provide adequate vaccines for the population. And such a tiny island under, you know, embargo from the United States has, you know, has managed to produce five vaccines of which the Abdallah vaccine is shown to have after three shots to have a 92% um, efficacy. So um, I would say that, that all of that goes to show that, you know, that the focus, the Cuban focus on public health and on prioritizing public health played a big role. I, you know, I was in touch, I've been in touch with my close friends in Cuba throughout the pandemic and they were very, very um, gung-ho at first about how they were all going to pull through, about, you know, the real 
um, importance of having a strong public health sector. And, uh, you know, they were, they were all sort of in it together and they were very proud of Cuba as a country, where, how it was dealing with the pandemic. Um, and so that was, that was how things were sort of more towards the beginning. And then uh, this is the problem is when you are a tiny country that is dependent on tourism, uh, Cuba couldn't survive. They couldn't survive. And yes, there were also internal issues. There were issues that, you know, the government was limiting um, the kinds of, you know, public, uh, public activities people could do, public enterprise. They were limiting what people could bring into the country. Um, there, you know, there were issues both from the government end and, as you mentioned before, also on the part of the sanctions that also restricted what, you know, was made available to Cubans. So a severe shortage of medicines, syringes, all of these things that are really essential right now were also being limited. So eventually Cuba had to open itself back up in a limited way to tourism and with tourism came the COVID cases. And so, you know, the country's been averaging six, 7,000 cases a day. Um, that's only the ones we know about as with everywhere else and so it's uh things have gotten worse now they have started from a while back they started um administering vaccines to people uh and first in trials and very quickly after the trials they the people who got placebos were given the actual vaccines and um and that is sort of helping somewhat but the reality of the situation is it's just not possible for the majority of cubans to isolate they have to wait in lines for food they need to participate in different forms of economic activity they have to be on the streets and and especially in poorer areas where it's very difficult for people to socially distance the virus especially with this new delta variant is really spreading and so the sort of uh pot boiler that we see right now and i don't want to overemphasize that because while things are difficult and while there have been protests it's nothing like what is being portrayed in the western media of you know uh massive massive demonstrations going on week long and angry cubans out in the streets and i mean that image that we're being presented it is not true either so you know what I've heard from most of my friends is yes there were protests yes people were really angry they went out in the streets there was a whole range of reasons it wasn't just one they weren't all clamoring for western freedom they were you know a range of things probably very you know at the forefront was the the shortages the difficulties and they're feeling that the government was not listening to them and that I think was tying into some of the artistic movements we were seeing earlier so um so I think that was really a key thing that we've seen in the last week is, uh, you know, this, this sort of um, pouring out of protest in response to, um, you know, an organic protest in response to the difficulties and the shortages. For sure. I think that's such an important point about the media, especially kind of blowing this out of proportion. And I was going to ask you about, because I um, saw in your Twitter that you had some friends in Cuba and just in terms of, yeah, what it was like to be in Cuba now, like what's it like for the people on the ground? Like what's the atmosphere like to kind of put it more into context? Yeah. So again, I think, you know, uh, people, are, it's an extremely difficult time. Um, I have two friends who, um, you know, are older Cuban women, uh, Afro-Cuban women who have, uh, one has been vaccinated, the other's not because she had an allergic reaction and um, and they're both, 
you know, saying that things are extremely difficult right now. It's, there's no medicines. There's no, it's very hard to get, you know, basic food supplies, that people are really hurting and people are really struggling. Um, they also said that, you know, they, they haven't seen the kind of widespread unrest that um, these, these friends who live in central Havana and Playa, which are working class neighbourhoods of the city, they haven't really seen the kind of widespread unrest that's being reported in the media. And they um, also are quite sceptical of... Um, of, uh, you know, that, that there are groups outside of Cuba. They believe that there are groups outside of Cuba who are trying to um, manipulate the protests, who are trying to put their own agenda onto what's happening in Cuba. So this is what my friends have been saying to me. But at the same time, I think one of my friends, you know, was just telling me that she's been very... Um, uh, disappointed and upset about the ways in which the protests have been represented in the Cuban media by the Cuban government. So uh, people have been represented, you know, young protesters who are angry and who are trying to, you know, express their frustrations are being uh, branded as delinquents and all kinds of racialized and negative language used to describe them. And um, rather than, you know, trying to listen to what they have, they have to say and trying to uh, be open, which I think to some extent, in the last few days we have seen that the government has, um, you know, made certain changes. They have uh, uh, waived the limitations on goods that can be brought into the country. They're, you know, I think they're, they're realising that they have to let loose some of this pressure valve if they want to contain the protests and, this can, and, and help people. Um, but, of course, there are also long-standing issues within the Cuban political system that, uh, that would take, you know, bigger changes and a lot longer to be addressed. And I think the question remains, you know, is this the start of deeper changes for Cuba, which I remain sceptical can happen within the conditions that Cuba currently is, which is, you know, extreme shortage, extreme difficulty and extreme vulnerability to the kind of manipulation and, uh, short and, and sanctions from the north. You're listening to a conversation I had with Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney. Um, we're talking about Cuba and exactly what has been happen- happening there in recent weeks, um, how they handled COVID and kind of dispelling a lot of, um, I guess, uh, exa- exaggerated and um, misleading media representation. Uh, We're going to go to a quick break before we get stuck into the second half. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on one 300 500 That's one 300 500 Wellways supports 3CR. All right, well, we're going to go to a track by um, an artist called Zuzu, who's from Liverpool in the UK, and this song is called Beauty Queen. <laughs>
So that was Beauty Queen by Zuzu. We're going to jump back into um, a conversation I had with Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney, uh, talking about Cuba, the current climate in Cuba, and giving a bit of context about um, exactly uh, what's happening in Cuba. Um, for the second half of this interview, we talk more deeply about uh, the media representation, especially um, since Cuba is a communist country, um, I guess the representation that the Western media um, uh, gives off with that. Um, but here we go. Yeah, I wanted to focus in because what I'm finding a lot in media reports, especially in the West, there's a focus on, you know, the fact that Cuba is a communist state and the blame is kind of 
put on, you know, this is a failing of socialism and communism. And I guess it's kind of reminiscent of the US's refusal to accept, you know, that they lost the battle for Cuba and like, I guess the sanctions are kind of punishment or whatever. But um, have you found this as well, that, you know, there's this kind of war of words on communism that kind of deflects the conversation on, you know, the sanctions and the other issues? You know, I've seen this a lot um, in Cuba, but also in Venezuela. And I think that this is partly to do with the US. I, I think that this is not even that much to do with Cuba because within the US right now, I mean, we saw in the last presidential primaries, we saw Bernie Sanders, who's a candidate who spoke very strongly about, you know, socialism. We saw AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who also, you know, sees herself as a socialist. And the whole language of democratic socialism has entered the US right now in an unprecedented way. And so what I see is that a lot of these politicians, Republican politicians, are kind of using Cuba and Venezuela as bogeymen, as a way to say, you know, look at how horrible things are in this country. Look at, you know, all the shortages. Look at how people hate this system. You know, would you really want to have this kind of system in the US? And so that's why I think, you know, yes, I agree with you. This is a debate right now that's taking place over communism and socialism. But much of the debate in the media, I don't see as even being that much about Cuba. I think a lot of this is, is about, you know, um, is about the US itself and, and the challenge being faced right now in the US is, you know, as we have extreme environmental uh, degradation, you know, caused by climate change and, you know, massive inequalities caused by neoliberal capitalism. And people are just questioning. They're saying, how is capitalism possibly a sustainable system moving forward? Um, and what alternatives are there? And and so, you know, that sort of has led, I think, to, uh, to some of this vitriol. For sure. Um, I wanted to mention your most recent book as well. Uh, for listeners, it's titled The Cuban Hustle, and uh, it explores the multitudinous ways artists, activists and ordinary Cubans have hustled to survive and express themselves in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the activism that's happening now and the solidarity in Cuba. Um, and I guess the question was, yeah, do you think what's, <laughs> what's happening now is an extension of Cuban resilience and solidarity? Yeah. So I, I have to say, I don't um, know a whole lot about the current makeup of, of these protests. And um, I think there's, okay, so there's both a continuity and a disjuncture. I think there's a continuity in the sense that um, a lot of the movements that I looked at, which were in the 1990s and in the last two decades, were uh, movements that really talk seriously about race and gender inequalities in Cuba, and they talked about, um, you know, uh, political issues, uh, political power, and uh, and they, they sought to sort of put forward more independent and critical ways of thinking about the arts, about Cuban society. So, yes, to some extent, I think this all grows out of what we're seeing today, grows out of that, those movements that shed the, that uh, sort of planted the initial seeds and um, and as things get difficult, I think, you know, we're seeing new groups emerge that are drawing on that legacy. Um, at the same time, I don't want to overemphasise that connection as I think a lot of reporters today, you know, there was an op-ed piece by Yoani Sanchez, the Cuban blogger in the New York Times, and we've seen a lot of these pieces claiming that, you know, these artistic groups are the vanguard of artistic protest. And I don't think that's true because at the same time, I think there is a disjuncture between um, the kinds of uh, of critical 
organizations that I work with, the Afro-Cuban groups, the, um, the artists, the rappers, that um, between them and between the groups that exist today, that there's not, you know, they don't see themselves as the same groups. They're not... Um, you know, they're not part of the same movement because those earlier groups, I think, uh, worked very long and very hard to preserve critical spaces within Cuba. And um, and I think there's a kind of anger and desperation um, now that is seeking to move beyond that, that's saying, you know, we don't really care. We want to, um, you know, if, if it means going to jail or whatever, we don't care about that. So so I don't want to overdraw the connection. And, and it's it's part of the reason why I haven't, you know, uh, talked a lot about this because it's it's hard for me to, um, to sort of uh, see the connections between those earlier earlier groups and the earlier activism and um, and the activism that's that's happening today. But I think you know it's probably important to recognise that there's that there's a lot going on and there's different things going on and to try to reduce all that to any one um, you know sort of expression of solidarity or expression of something else is sorry not solidarity to one expression of um, you know freedom or uh, an expression of you know, uh, communism or whatever it is, I think would be reductionist. And we're seeing that now. I think part of my frustrations with us, with a forum like Twitter, for instance, is that it's very difficult to find nuanced takes on there. There are people who either say, um, you know, uh, we stand with the Cubans and, you know, we, we need the end of the blockade and we need to um, free Cuban and we need to, um, you know, denounce US imperialism. And then on the other hand, you have people saying this is the start of the new Cuban revolution and, you know, these people are out protesting for freedoms. And so it's this is what you see. The discourse on Twitter and in other social media is is very black and white like that. And I don't find a lot of space for nuanced. So I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you today because I think it's through you know, uh, these kind of takes that we can delve deeper and think more deeply about um, really, you know, what uh, what's going on in Cuba today. And, and like I said, I think um, there's no simple answers or no easy solutions or no easy connections to make. Um, I think it's an evolving situation and, uh, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And especially what you said about Twitter, I definitely agree. You can't capture the complexity of a situation just with a tweet. And I mean, that's why these conversations are so important. And that's why having experts and lived experience people on is so important to actually say and get across the complexity of a certain situation. Um, Just on an ending note, uh, did you have any, for people that maybe wanted to read more or have uh, educate themselves more about Cuba did you have any resources uh, that you could let our listeners know about or books so um, there's a fantastic website unfortunately it's in Spanish so I I guess (laughs) nowadays you can get things translated right you just uh, can say translate this page but there's a fantastic resource where I've been reading a lot of articles right now called on Cuba O-N-C-U-B-A. It's a website um, that was started uh, by a group of really fantastic Cuban journalists in Cuba and um, it's been publishing amazing stuff. In fact, my Cuban friends just send me the links all the time to articles from there 
And um, so I would highly recommend that as a really good source for information about what's going on. And like I said, it's in Spanish. So if you don't speak Spanish, I think you can just look it up online and, and you know, Google can translate the page. Yeah. And you'll get an idea of what they're saying. Um, because honestly, I have found most of the mainstream media reporting, New York Times, Guardian, um, you know, all of these sources I've found to just not be in touch with what's going on on the ground in Cuba with not much idea, with just very heavily ideological kind of takes on things. And um, and I feel that really reading journalists in Cuba is, I think, the best way to, to sort of have a sense of what's going on. Definitely. And we can pop those links up on our website as well for um, people... Uh, well, thank you so much, Sujatha. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for, I guess, grasping some of the complexity. That was Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney. And I think um, just to expand on just for a small moment, just her point at the end there about, you know, um, reading articles and if you want to access media from a certain about a certain issue it's the best thing to do is access journalists that are on the ground that are there that are you know in this case in Cuba and um, just for listeners that might not have uh, gotten um, that journalist spot and I have actually looked it up and you can translate all of it to English. So it's really accessible. Um, it's on Cuba. So O-N-C-U-B-A news.com. Um, and it's a really great way to kind of um, get a grasp of what's going on. Um, but yeah, I, I was, <laughs> I love what Sujatha has to say about social media as well. And I think it's so important to realize that yeah, it can be quite a um, constructive tool and it can be quite a polarizing tool that really can't um, express uh, how complicated and um, contested and um, complex situations are. So it's really important to keep that in mind. Yeah, um, that was such a great interview, Genevieve. Um, and you're right. And Sujata made such a great point about <clears throat> the lack of nuances on social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that extends to so many big conversations happening definitely. at the moment with COVID, with, um, you know. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And I think with the huge voices of big media and even, you know, um, a lot of media that I can consume, uh, voices that are actually living that experience get drowned out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we will be right back after this. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. You are on Tuesday Breakfast and 
We're about to go to a track by one of my favorite Australian artists, Mole Rat, and this one is called Charlie. breakfast i just want warm cups of tea i just might love you forever i hope you warm up to me i hope your dreams are amazing i hope your dreams are amazing my daddy worked out west and he worked so hard my mom she smells like Charles's heart she says that love is like a chess game and boys gotta do the chasing but when did I start taking her advice I raised myself and that's all right I want coffee for breakfast I want warm cups of tea I'm gonna love you forever I hope you warm up to me I hope your dreams are amazing I hope your dreams are amazing hope your dreams are amazing I hope I'll maybe sneak my way and I'd like that But you got me feeling something And his heart felt like I smelts When winter turns to spring And I keep your pictures like a hoarder I think about you when I sing Said you can lead a horse to water But you can't always make a drink So I drink coffee for breakfast I want warm cups of tea I just might love you forever I hope you warm up to me I think you might be an angel Think you might be an angel I think you might be an angel I think you might be all you gotta do is wait for me to get home like charlie in the rain outside all i want to do is see you when i get home like charlie in the rain outside all you gotta do is wait for me to get home like charlie in the rain outside all i want to do Was Charlie by Molrad. Um, up next, we've got Lee Tan with an update on the worsening situation in Malaysia. Cases have surpassed one million this week as the country recorded its highest daily numbers of infections since the beginning of the pandemic. We heard from environmental consultant and human rights activist Lee Tan last week about the dire situation regarding democracy and COVID in Malaysia at a time where, although there is almost daily reports from Indonesia 
little is heard about Malaysia. I rang Lee once again at the weekend as the situation is continuing to deteriorate in Malaysia. It is actually. Yesterday, I mean, they had over 13,000 cases of infection. Um, That's been, I think, the highest since COVID was declared a pandemic in Malaysia. And that's despite the emergency ordinance being imposed from January uh, of this year. How are people being treated? You know, how people are being treated is unequal. If you're a minister, if you're a politician, or if you're a person well-connected to the government, you seem to be able to flounce the movement control order. But if you're, you know, poor, ordinary people, desperately trying to find a means to keep the family alive and and, uh, fed, you know, and, and you could get a very hefty fine. Uh, and there have been police going to certain places, checking on people to make sure they adhere to the so-called MCO, the lockdown uh, requirement, and they're not consistent uh, or uniform. You know, it depends on what race you are, what racial background you are, and also, you know, who or where it is and, and whom, whether you're connected or not politically. So... You know, it's been really problematic and very unfair for many people, especially if they're not well connected to the political, you know, to the uh, ruling party. Uh, And if they are not of particular racial uh, background. With so many new cases, how many people are dying or or don't they publish that figure? Well, they, they have been publishing, but not widely publicised in that sense. But more worrying is the, pe- the number of suicides. Apparently in the last quarter, three months, there have been over 300 cases of known suicides because of this lockdown, because of COVID, and because of the hardship, economic hardship and social isolation. And because of this, you know, huge number of um, suicide or alarming figures, some people in the community began to take action. Although, you know, some had already done that before, but this time they're trying to make it more visible. And one of those actions been the white flag campaign, you know, where when a, a, a woman in one of the state in a northern state suggested through social media, for people to put up white flag to gain attention if they need help. And that campaign's actually taken off. And within, you know, 24 hours, it, got, it went viral and it became widely known, not only in Malaysia, but also around the world now. And what about a black flag? Yes. And then uh, following the white flag uh, campaign, you know, when people are putting out the white flag and getting support and all that, the ruling government or the, the, yeah, the politicians, some of them felt shameful and started to you know, ask police to intervene and, and uh, suggesting that it shouldn't happen. It's kind of um, being seen as failure to the government and so on and so forth. 
and at the same time, the medical association has started a black flag campaign. The black flag campaign is to try and advocate for more certainty for people at the front line, particularly the medical or the the tag, you know, the medical um, doctors and um, yeah, and the people in that health sector. The black flag campaign is more to get people to show support for their advocacy, to give clearer tenure duration and also fairer pay for medical people, doctors, young doctors particularly, who basically risk their life, you know, in during the COVID pandemic to save people who are badly infected. And it's more a social media campaign where they ask citizens to use uh, to turn their profile into a black color. Again, you know, it's got interpreted by the government as an anti-government activity. And some of the um, medical officers from the hospitals been warned uh, and investigated not to take part, which is really uh, disappointing in view of the situation in Malaysia right now. I'd imagine that health professionals are suffering as well as the general public. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been cases of death happening there, but they also been a case where a major vaccination center was infected and the whole, like, there's been, like, quite a number of uh, healthcare professionals, nurses um, and doctors who, who were present um, who were all tested COVID positive, mainly because of the Delta variant, the same variant that's you know, affecting uh, Australia right now. They're spreading very fast. Because of the um, limited capacity of the health services, particularly in, um, in the state of Selangor, where Kuala Lumpur is located, uh, where the population is highest and where the infection has been, you know, worse, they're really running out of capacity Many of the medical officers are working in very risky, high-risk environment. Yeah, with very little break, poor protection, under huge amount of pressure. Uh, and yet, you know, we had a situation where the cabinet has like over 40 ministers, or wise ministers and what have you, and, you know, getting paid and not really doing their job because parliament hasn't sat since the coup, uh, basically last year, I think. And so there's been very little coordination within the government. And, you know, ministers are still going overseas, you know, for pleasure or for whatever excuses they're giving while the people are suffering. And the family going hungry. Yeah, and doctors are, you know, dying as well as working under huge amount of pressure. And COVID's going out of control still despite the supposedly lockdown and despite the emergency. So as you can imagine, you know, there are many very angry, frustrated and very worried people. So that was uh, Lee Tan there with an update on the COVID situation in Malaysia, which, yeah, is rather worrying. Yeah, it sounds like it. 
All right, well, we're coming to the end of our show today. Um, we had some really interesting conversations um, from a while ago and, uh, of course, more recently about Cuba. Um, I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, um, very much a Cuba-focused episode. Um, and I encourage people to go out and find more if you're interested. Um, we had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, um, who, and I also, just before we wrap up, want to plug um, her book called The Cuban Hustle, and it particularly focuses on um, Cuban movements uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, so in 1989 um, through to the early 2000s. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's called The Cuban Hustle. Um, and we also played some old audio from Accent of Women. Um, and yeah, the interview um, just then with Jan. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully we get some good news today about the lockdown yeah. in Melbourne. I feel positive. Yeah. Things, optimistic. Things are looking okay. Yeah. I think it's okay to be slightly optimistic. <laughs> like heavy skepticism yeah, with everything course, that always. we've been condition to like have with this yeah but i mean i recommend heavy skepticism yeah for anything really shields you yeah, from <laughs> in life yeah definitely um but yeah uh, stay tuned to 3cr and tune into uh, the rest of our breakfast shows for the rest of the week Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program.